Am I, <laughs> do I sound fine to you? I, th- I feel like I sound very muffled. You've always sounded pretty nasal. Welcome once again aboard Beef Station for a very zonked out episode of the show. Oh, we've been up all, all night fixing a leak on the lower decks. Mm. The good news is that Beef Station lives to fly to another horizon. Yep. I'm Oscar. I'm a much less weary Andrew. Let's jump right on into it. Yep. If you're wondering why the episode goes for 10 <laughs> minutes this week... <laughs> this is a clue as Oscar to why. Oscar passes out from exhaustion <laughs> and we've got to go to the ER. So. <laughs> Holy shit, I'm so tired, man. You've okay. worked like, what, 48 hours and it's Thursday? <laughs> Something like that. That's fucked. Okay. Oh, no, that is literally true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You spent two of these four days at work. <laughs> Fuck! <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, this... Yeah. this Heavy realization is going to be cut out of the show. <laughs> Don't know about that. Did you have? I'm going to edit it while you're oh. asleep <laughs> for the next three years. Yeah. Did you have anything to start with? Yeah, I do. Did we watch a movie this week? Shit. Did we? Did we watch a movie? I watched one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Me too. We'll me figure it me out too. I watched a movie as well. So while I was waiting for you to finish work, you watched a movie. I went and got. <laughs> no, I went and got a beer. Uh. So I went up to the counter and they only have um, two kinds of beer on tap at this place. Yep. Uh, and I was like, oh, can I just get a half pint of 150 lashes? The bartender like was one of those people where when he's like, when he's tapping a button on the screen, he like flicks his hands a couple of times and then Fidgets taps it a and, bit. Like, taps the side of the screen. I was like, this guy's moving around heaps. Like he just, he's one of those people that just moves a lot. Absolutely off his face for sure. <laughs> no, I think it was just like built in mannerisms, but also like, very like stressed out. <laughs> sure. So I go up and I'm like, "Yeah, can I just get half pint of the 150?" And he's like, <laughs> and "He goes what? Uh? Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, mm. No, he was perfectly <laughs> normal, but he was like, "Yep, sure. Um, we've just got to change over the keg, which feels like it happens to me above average." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that'd be like you know how people talk about like very minor superpowers. Like, yeah. I'd love it if, like, I had the superpower to just always make broken pens work pretty quickly. Mm. That'd be a good mild superpower. I feel like very mild curses would be like <laughs> they always every have to time, the keg. <laughs> every time you order a beer, they have to change the keg. Yeah, that would be fucked. It'd be life ruining. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> um, hey, do you want to go and get a drink? No, I don't. You test it. You'd be like, can you get it for me? <laughs> Can you go there yeah. and I'll tell you what I want yeah, over yeah, the yeah. phone? Yeah. Can you Snapchat me all the heads? It's like, no, if I'm within, <laughs> it, it works if I'm within 100 meters. If I'm not within 100 meters, then the curse doesn't activate. <laughs> okay, I'll see you, man. I want the, yeah. <laughs> the 150. <laughs> 150 lashes. <laughs> um, so this guy said, no worries, man. We've just got to change the camera. <laughs> I inhale to say, don't worry about it. I'll just get a furphy. And he spins around. To change the keg and knocks a bottle yes. of Green Fairy Absinthe off the counter and the full bottle of Green Fairy obliterates itself on the ground. And he just like stands there looking <laughs> at it. And I'm I've like, had those moments like, oh no. I'm like, I'm just going to leave it and I will have the 150 lashes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what you should have ordered? An Absinthe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Actually, can I get a Green Fairy? Oh, uh, uh, fuck. Uh, yeah. That was pretty funny. Yeah, if, if, if we were doing breakfast radio, that'd be when I'd want to go to a song. They're like, yeah! yeah. <laughs> All right. 
Story time's over. Are we starting with the news? Buckle in, listeners. It's time to get to work. I think I've we'll earned start some, with some news. I think I've earned some news music, man. Let's music. do it. Music. Oh, in excellent timing, the headphones have just totally fucked out. Jesus Christ. Beef Bulletin. Okay, Beef Bulletin. The first one, actually, let's sizzle that. Let's do the second one. Yeah, the second one. So there's a, I don't know, have you seen Edge of Tomorrow? It's that Tom Cruise film where he repeatedly, every time he dies, he comes back to life on the same day. It's kind of like Groundhog Day, but an action movie. The porn parody's got Sting in it, and it's called Edging Tomorrow. Nice. You're welcome, next. Well, there's a sequel back in active development. Starring starring Sting? No, just, well, not to my knowledge. I mean, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, no, starring Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt, uh, as far as I'm aware. So this one was based on a visual novel, I think, yeah. a graphic novel. Um, <laughs> really good movie. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. came out a few years ago now. One of... Tom Cruise's rare, like, really funny roles where I feel like they took a bit of influence from how well some of the Mission Impossible movies have been going. Like, they'd have that kind of Simon Pegg Well, they're not funny, but they've got a bit of quirk. Yeah, He's never the funny do. one. It's a similar tone. It's a similar yeah. tone of, like, sometimes they've kind of... They've acknowledged the absurdity of the films. Well, this I, one I is feel really like good. In the same way, maybe it's like the James Bond movies used to be a, bit, a lot more tongue-in-cheek than they are now. Maybe, like... I feel like it's kind of going the other way. Mission Impossible 1 and 2... What would you know about the Mission Impossible took, movies? Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. It was last year I watched them all, so... I'd, I'd much prefer to talk to someone that's watched all of them in a 24-hour period. <laughs> in, in 2019 in 2018. Yeah. <laughs> they took themselves very seriously, and uh-huh. uh, I just think that the humour really lends itself well to that series, and mm-hmm. uh, Edge of Tomorrow has that in spades. I really liked it. If you haven't seen it, I'd strongly recommend watching it. Actually, I should incorporate that as a go-to recommendation for when people are just like, I want to watch something, but I don't want to think. This is a fucking great I don't want to think movie. It's yeah. up there. It's it's like John Wick. After you've like, watched like one of those 10-hour kaleidoscopes on YouTube while listening to us, yeah. and you've run out of <laughs> all possible I don't want to think yeah, media exactly. that's Beef Station branded, you can go into... Edge I'm not going to lie, man. I've completely forgotten about the movie. Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. So there's a sequel in uh-huh. active development, apparently. And you want to watch I it. I guess it's been on ice for you a while. Should, we should watch it. The we story d- is that it's back in development. Oh. It's been a- in ambiguity for a while. Okay. Next piece of news. Mm-hmm. Guillermo del Toro is directing Zan Bato, a new film that he's collaborating on with J.J. Abrams. It features a kick-ass female lead and apparently there was a story that the main character would be a ninja and del toro got on twitter to debunk that idea so this film name zanbardo involved guillermo del toro jj abrams not ninjas or at least not the main character the main character is not a ninja so i have no idea what the fuck is up with the rest of that movie other than that right but the main character is not not a ninja i repeat not and Ninja. So if you're looking for a J.J. Abrams Guillermo del Toro movie (laughs) that has a main character with a ninja in it, don't watch San Bardo. (laughs) Uh, Okay, this is a good one. The director of Hereditary, Ari Aster, uh, is Uh returning. So I think Hereditary was sort of his directorial, or at least his full-length directorial debut. Sure. Widely critically acclaimed, and we liked it, hated it, liked it. Hereditary. Hereditary, yes. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, carry on with the headline. Yes. <laughs> That's fine. Oscar just looked at me like, oh, God, man. What are you talking I about? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, man. I got you. I got you. Yeah, so he's, his new film is going to be called Midsummer, spelt S O M M A R. 
Midsommar. You can't even um, spell Midsummer. Yeah, I know. Well, that's the most terrifying bit of the movie is... <laughs> the way that they teach <laughs> spelling in school nowadays... I don't ever think we should bother with the apostrophe anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I saw this in Midsummer. It's going to be uh, starring a lady named Florence Pooh. Thank you very much. Um, and w- Will Poulter, who most recently <laughs> was in Bandersnatch. Oh, no. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's correct. But he was in... Listen, you son he of a bitch, I'm not that tired. Don't try to fucking <laughs> gaslight me. Well, I haven't seen Bandersnatch, but I have seen Detroit, the movie about the Detroit riots. And uh, oh. he was the bad guy in it. It's very good. Mm. This one, uh, there's a new trailer out for... A an Amazon serial called uh, Good Omens, which is apparently an adaptation of uh, a, a much beloved source novel from uh, Neil Gaiman and the late Terry Pratchett. Uh, so it's starring Michael Sheen, who I quite like, and yeah, he's da- cool, and David Tennant, uh, and it's got a whole bunch of other really famous people. Uh, uh-huh. John Hamm is in it, Nick Offerman, Jack Whitehall, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, Francis McDormand and Benedict Cumberbatch are providing the voices of God and Satan respectfully. <laughs> so, or respectively. But definitely not respectfully. No, not ir- irrespectfully. <laughs> um, Francis McDormand's like, oh, I'm God. I created the heaven and the earth in six days. Imagine how dumb I'd have to be to create heaven and earth in seven days. <laughs> I took a rest. Yeah. Got to dumb shit, eh? I'm Satan. All I do is get people to play guitar good. Yes, and. Next story... Brian K. Vaughan, who wrote on shows like Lost and Under the Dome, is writing yeah, a new movie. What did, he, what did he write on? What? <laughs> Just take another shot of this point. <laughs> Just go from Brian nah, K. Vaughan. No, this is all stated. Uh, Brian K. Vaughan, who wrote on shows such as Lost and Under the Dome, uh, is making a new movie about fucking Gundams, a live-action mobile suit Gundam movie. <laughs> oh, <shit>. So yeah, <laughs> um, so stay tuned. The film was announced at last year's Anime Expo, which is this can't um, be. Tr- are we living in the Matrix? Literally, hell man, on we're Earth. getting Gundam movies. We're getting Sonic the Hedgehog uh, movies. This isn't too far. We're getting fucking Detective Pikachu with. I mean, Pacific Rim, to be fair, is directed by people way more well-known than that. And that was kind of Neon Genesis Someone's fucking with us. Someone's slowly feeding us crazier and crazier movies until we realize we have to wake up. Uh, Outside of the writing, he's also an executive producer on the series based on Why the Last Man, um, which is hopefully on screens next year. We talked a little bit about that one. That's the visual novel where the guy is the last man alive with his pet monkey. I'm getting news here that... um They've just announced a new Digimon stop motion movie. <laughs> <laughs> now, listeners, well, what, but I don't know if you're picking up on the sarcasm in Oscar's voice. Wait, but Wallace and Gromit are featuring characters. Uh, Says here that Wallace is Gromit's Digimon. <laughs> how, how about that? That would actually be way better. <laughs> <laughs> the, the main character that controls the Digimon can't speak. Only the Digimon can speak. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck, that's good. <laughs> that would actually be great. Uh, the dog is the person that controls the Digimon shit. Also, be how fantastic. good is Wallace and Gromit? Ah, oh, so good. Yeah, I gotta rewatch that. Yeah, watching that dumb motherfucker get hit in the face by a slice of jam toast will never <laughs> not be funny. Watching that cue ball headed British fuck suffer is one of my favorite childhood memories. Oh, I was talking about you. Yeah. Yeah. So was I. <laughs> Uh, Bond producer Barbara Broccoli, which, not a real name. Always funny. (laughs) 
<laughs> every time it's funny. <laughs> if you're a woman and you don't want to be associated with the movie, you know, what's the fucking name that you put instead of the, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. male name of the but director's it's Barbara name? Broccoli. Yeah. <laughs> it's Alan Smithy, you dumb shit. Ah, man. You know, um, every Adam Sandler movie was also produced by Barbara Broccoli? There were rumors that Bond 25 would be filming under the title Shatterhand. <laughs> That's such a uh, terrible and name. she signed an autograph which had uh, on on a thing that said Shatterhand on it that someone had mocked up just in case it was real, and she <laughs> signed her name and then above it wrote "It's not" with an arrow pointing to Shatterhand. So she has oh. debunked that that is the working. That's a title psychotic of the way film. to phrase that. It sounded like you were saying it is the whole time. No, it's not. Well, that's the way that the news story is meant to be read. I was just conveying the art form, mate. Sh- it's but. like Shatterhand, written by Barbara Broccoli on an official poster in her own pen and in her own hand, is not the name of the movie. Uh, <laughs> so I've I got reckon. I've got news about I've got news about the new Bond twenty five here as well, yeah. saying that they're casting and they're going to start production in spring. Oh. So if that movie <laughs> ever does start production, we might see it someday. I mean, it sounds like they've been focusing most of their efforts on just deciding what the title fucking isn't. Yeah, more <laughs> reasons to not have Bond be a woman. At this point, we're getting very close to just being not news. There's just no news. About <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, they might be making a movie. Probably not. Uh, we don't really know, so stay yeah. tuned on that one. Did, did More news <laughs> to come. Did you see this uh, Spielberg story this week? Yeah, fuck that guy. What do you think about this? So, um, ne- uh, no, no. Steven Let's Sp- just leave it at that. I've given my opinion. Nothing else <laughs> needs to happen. All of the listeners are already informed on what's yeah, going so on. It We're says done. here someone fucked Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Is that what you mean? Yeah, one too many times, if you <laughs> ask me, Matt. Um, so, Steven Spielberg um, suggested in some speech he gave out somewhere recently. Um, <laughs> no, no. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news. Yeah. Steven Spielberg. Says like something Steven somewhere. Steven Spielberg. Um, suge- Spiel. He's, <laughs> he suggested to uh, further clarify or further modify the rules for like what qualifies you to be considered for Oscars to say you'd have to have a theatrical run of four weeks mm. um, which he specifically wants to do to exclude streaming movies uh, like Netflix's Roma that just cleaned up at the Oscars this which, year. And Roma got a general release as well but um, yeah. I think that just proves the point of how fucking stupid that is of a thing to say because there's nothing that it being on a streaming service yeah, uh, it, it being on a streaming service doesn't affect the end product that's on the screen in any way, shape, or yeah. form. Well, it, it's in fact better films probably have less of a chance of being recognised if they're only released on streaming services than if they're released in theaters. I think so. it's an interesting way that culture. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's an interesting way that culture has changed though, because if thirty years there ago, we go. <laughs> if thirty years ago someone had said they wanted to consider a straight to VHS movie for an Oscar. Mm. You could say, well, no, that's that's not a bad movie. It's just some indie guy who couldn't afford to get his movie on the big screen or whatever. Or it's just some sort of right. alternate distribution thing. So it's just amazing that you have these production houses like Amazon and Netflix that can pump all these money into these movies that would otherwise be terrible, um, perhaps, um, that are now of a high enough caliber and quality to be considered for Oscars. And I think it's just more of a breakdown of the... Like, uh, the, the, the normal... This isn't particularly like studio model. This isn't particularly insightful, but going to see a movie in theaters is now not the only way to watch movies, whereas it once yeah. was. And I think it's really and interesting, and the, it just shows the, the that surrounding infrastructure of watching a film is changing. Um, and Steven Spielberg, in both his filmmaking and his general opinions, is fucking stuck in the past. You old man, talentless, so stuck in the past, boring milk toast. Absolutely, director. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, go go and make uh, fucking uh, kids stuck in VR too. Why don't you? Huh? Yeah, Take you that, fucking idiot. Yeah. 
Idris Elba's ready to replace Will Smith for the Suicide Squad sequel, which was apparently a very mm. fast turnaround. Now, there's a weird headline. Ready to replace. No, that sounds like Idris Elba was on fucking Triple J or some shit, and they were like, so would you take the job, man? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. I think only the Hollywood reporter is reporting that he will be taking on the role of Deadshot, but that's enough <laughs> for everyone to jump on the media commentary train, so... <laughs> no, you, you misread that. Idris according Elba to, shot someone dead the other day. <laughs> according to The Hollywood Reporter, Idris Elba's taken on the role of Deadshot instead of Will Smith in a movie that I will not see. Yeah. Uh, my last news headline is that... <laughs> uh, Josh Brolin and Peter Dinklage... Oh my God, I saw this! <laughs> ...are starring in a film called... <laughs> Brothers, it's now, twins, baby. Before you jump it's to twins. Now, before you jump to the conclusion that I think some of you might jump to, if you recall, in 1988, a little comedy came out starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, <laughs> called Twins. Fuck yeah! Now, apparently, there's been talk for years that a sequel to this would actually happen, right? <laughs> it's finally happened. This movie's not that. <laughs> This movie's a different movie. <laughs> like, someone's going to pass over the VHS for twins, and this guy yeah. will be like, what? Right. He's like, I've never... How has this not come up? How long did it take you to Photoshop that and put it into a fake VHS cover because that movie's not real? Fucking hell, man. Actually, I will say, okay, I'm going to show you a side-by-side of Peter Dinklage and Josh Brolin. Listen, they absolutely seat. could be brothers. Like, that's... They look quite similar. No, this is a documentary. They are brothers. Yeah, there's a striking resemblance there. Anyway, so... Assumedly, now, Ethan Cohen, who scripted, as we've talked about a lot, Tropic Thunder and your favourite film, uh, Holmes and Watson. <laughs> Fuck them, this article says, is oh, apparently. Is that guy? It's that guy. Is apparently. Oh, it's a 50 50 shot as to whether this is going to be great or terrible. Yeah, this, this author says. Oh, you know, it's not great or terrible. It's blackface or terrible, <laughs> isn't it? It's in either this film is going to heavily feature blackface <laughs> or it's going to be terrible. Yeah, James White of the Empire. And those two are mutually magazine, exclusive. Uh, says that. So he says. Yeah, Eaton Cohen, who scripted Tropic Thunder and most recently wrote and directed Holmes and Watson, is apparently <laughs> still legally permitted to make movies after the latter <laughs> and will work on the script. Uh, Jesus so Christ. The storyline will movie. find Brolin and Dinklage's unlikely siblings and will just go from there. So, yeah, we'll see how that turns out. I reckon they're just one upping them, saying, <laughs> well,. Danny DeVito isn't a real little person. He's just a very short man. So we've got to make this movie again and do it right. So, okay. yeah. Um, now, our I last bit of news. The final news story. I know the listeners have been hanging yeah. out for the most. The, the final news story that everyone's been waiting for. Drum roll, please. They've announced. I'm really proud of myself being able to conjure up the Green Hill theme that fast. Oh, man. At first, I thought this is a really elaborate drum roll. Oh, my God, it's happening. Um,. Uh, there's been like pages from a Sonic the Hedgehog film character style guide that's been leaked onto the internet and the front Holy cover fuck. is a full body full face <laughs> shot of what the full live action character from the new Sonic movie starring Jim Carrey as Dr. Eggman <laughs> coming in 2019 a real movie made with real money by real people this it- is the only time I'll say this this episode the world is eating itself the world is eating itself. The only way that you can say that sentence is that the world is eating itself. <laughs> Carry on. You know how I said that we'd be sent some sort of... What is this blue hedgehog fuck? You know how I said we'd be sent 
some sort of subliminal clue that maybe this is all some sort of joke developed yeah. by some computer program to fuck with They're us. just fucking with me more and more, man. I <sighs> His eyes aren't even the right shape. The, nothing <laughs> about this is right. His, his, his shoes are wrong. <laughs> They've released official Sonic shoes before and those are different shoes. He looks fucked. So we'll, we'll what have does the hedgehog even look like? We'll does have it look to make like this that? the art of the episode. Just stare into its green, vacant eyes. And you'll know what we're talking about. This you movie. You know, if we make this, here's a peek behind the curtain. If we make this the art for the episode, we're gonna have this fucking Sonic the Hedgehog picture in our podcast account forever. You I know. can't delete uh, that. No, I'm willing to. Cop it's gonna. That. Yep. This so, guy's gonna become a part of the podcast forever. I think you recall when we first got wind of this happening. I said, "I hope they fuck it," and this is the best sign I've gotten thus far that. They've oh boy! Absolutely fucked. They fucked it. <laughs> he looks like a chipmunk. You couldn't fuck it more than I think they have. <laughs> he kind of looks like you know oh, that man. you know that episode of The Simpsons where Homer steps into the 3D world. <laughs> he could absolutely have come out of that. He could have been something floating in the background of that. This is this is to 2D Sonic as that is to Homer. It looks fucking uncanny. It's not good. I cannot wait to see this movie. It looks insane. I thought Detective Pikachu was like a little weird when I first saw it. I saw a comparative side by side. This shit makes my skin crawl. <laughs> Detective Pikachu was fine. You I'm, I'm where, really proud of them. You can see where the skin from the underside of Sonic's thigh presses against the back of Sonic's calf now, and sort of compresses I'm gonna get together you to say into that this again, little slower. blue, fleshy, furry... <laughs> Hedgehog they haven't leg. decided. They haven't decided whether or not he's got fur or he's got skin. And as I said, it makes him look like some sort of Japanese Shinigami demon. <laughs> not happy about any of it. Look at his knees. <laughs> you gotta stop looking at this photo, man. <laughs> he's gonna come out of the computer screen and kill you. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. The most accurate part of the whole picture is the shape and the kind of position of Sonic's ears. Yeah. Somehow, the rest of the character looks fucked. That they look even more fucked. Yeah. <laughs> They've fucked the character so much that even the accurate shit doesn't... And it's so good. This picture is doing nothing but impress upon me. The fact that Sonic doesn't have nipples. Yeah, it, it is weird. I think it would somehow yeah, be less weird. He's got knees, so but he doesn't have nipples. He also has like, him. He's What's going on? Well I want Sonic <laughs> to have a big old bulge. The thing that's really fucked about this... Okay, just flicking back. This is the last thing I'll say about it. He has... If you take his head out of the equation, I'm just going to cover his head up. <laughs> it looks like a dude. It's a normal human. <laughs> His proportions are actually quite humanoid. It's just a dude it's wearing just, a helmet. It's just that he has a giant, giant head. And ironically... Size- Bigger than his torso. <laughs> so his head is bigger than his torso, but his arms and legs are very human. And that makes me want to throw up. It's just... They fucked it unbelievably. I wish they'd gone full human and made him a normal person and made it made his weird hedgehog head a normal human hedgehog head size. Because it would be less fucked. <laughs> and All his right. name is like Sonique Williamson. Yeah. And he's an Olympic runner. Um, you know, Jesus. here's the worst bit. His shoes look cheap. Yeah, they yeah they look like knockoff Nikes. They don't even look yeah. like they'd give him that much grip. No, and they're not. Yeah, again, they're they're in proportion to a human's shoe size, which is not what Sonic's shoes are. Sonic's got giant Sora from Kingdom Hearts style shoes. Fucking oh. hell, man. I know. Uh, we, I know. Listen, as we promised you that we would keep you up to date with every single scrap of news from this movie, and these photos do nothing but reinvigorate. 
my fervor to do so. It's really saying Holy something. Holy shit, I'm so excited for this movie. Based on this, I'm actually reassured about how not weird Jim Carrey is going to look as Eggman. Yeah, you a know, skinny Jim Canadian man playing a man that's the shape of a tangerine <laughs> is going to be less weird <laughs> than the cartoon character. Honestly, I... This makes me want to see it more, but it makes me want to remember it less. I think I'm going to need to see this movie after they've invented the fucking MIB, like mind flash erase technology, because otherwise I'm just not going to be able to sleep. <laughs> Fuck, man. It's crazy. Look at him. It's He looks different in every photo. Yeah, no, that's the other thing. There's no, there's no like, because obviously... He looks this, insane from every this angle. this isn't right. And so no. they can't, they can't... Actually, that no one has an internal logic of what he's supposed to look like, so every picture is a bit differently fucked. It looks like they've drawn it based on this podcast. Yeah, or like it's you describing to someone what Sonic the Hedgehog is, and someone's done like they've got like a police sketch artist in, and someone's <laughs> described Sonic the Hedgehog, and then they've passed that sketch to a three D animator, and that three D animator has run it through an AI. That's what this fucking thing looks like. Like, why are his eyebrows so well defined? I, 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 I gotta stop looking at it. It's yeah, you, yeah, you do. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's insane. Right, you gotta move on because otherwise Oscar's gonna end up like Sam Neill from fucking Event <laughs> Horizon, just clawing his eyes out. Okay, um, so <laughs> moving on. That was Beef Bulletin. Thank you for sticking Down with, with us through that small breakdown that we both. I think it's had. something that we all needed to talk about. <laughs> it's therapy. Yeah. Um, so to keep up tonally. With the beginning of this episode, we should move on to the movie we discussed, yeah. which was quite an understated indie drama. <laughs> yeah, I've got a little little intro about this boy. Oh, man. Go so for it. So, this week, yep, we did Leave No Trace, which is a 2018 film uh, from Deborah Granick directing uh, about a father and his daughter living in a forest-slash-public-park in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So, a couple of weeks ago, we did Captain Fantastic, which on paper sounds quite similar. Uh, Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian... It does sound quite similar, actually, doesn't it? ...also drew this comparison. Uh, but he took the opportunity to do a big old shit on Captain <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> describing it as uh, fatuous and naive and bafflingly overpraised. <laughs> well, see, I think that it was very good, and I think that the when we talked about Captain Fantastic, we talked about the idea that it wasn't trying to necessarily represent some sort of ideal society. Yeah. It was more using an exaggerated comparison between two different cultures to more look at the way we even identify and relate to other cultures themselves. Yeah. And I think Peter Bradshaw is a fucking racist for one. So I had to look up what fatuous meant, (laughs) and it means inanely foolish, which made me feel like I was like, Mr. Google, what does stupid mean? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't agree with his appraisal of Captain Fantastic, um, but he describes Leave No Trace comparatively as uh, careful, realistic... With a sense of what is possible and what is at stake for those people who really do attempt to turn their backs on conventional living and also reject the stigma of homelessness, but what is also at stake for their children who have had no say in the matter. Yeah. And I think that's a really good way to sort of summarize what this film's actually about. Right? Yeah. So it's um it's a film that was, as you said, produced last year. It's based on a novel called My Abandonment by Peter Rook, which I've never really heard of. No. Uh, but the film itself is written... Uh, co-written by Deborah Granick and Anne Rossellini. Also it, based on, a, or at least inspired by a true story. Yeah, so right. there's some grain of truth I imagine it probably to would this be. story. Yeah. And it's written by Deborah Granick. Um, so to sort of 
brush it out in broad strokes for a bit, you find out that the main character, uh, Will, is a veteran who, as you said, lives with his daughter, Tom, in like a nature reserve, like yep. a public park, somewhere just outside of Portland, Oregon. Um, and the really the first sort of 20 minutes to 30 minutes of the movie is just you watching them almost silently just live their life in the woods. Yeah, it's meant to kind of establish the relationship between the two of so them. So, like, it's... N- yeah, so it's nothing fantastical like Captain Fantastic where they have, like, <laughs> straw huts and a library oh. and, oh, <laughs> and a watchtower or anything. It's literally like they have a tent and, like, a camp stove um, and, like, a wood-fired whatever, and you see them, like, rubbing kindling together to make a fire at the beginning of the movie, um, and they, they go hunting... Um, not even, I don't think. You see them like foraging. No, they, they forage for mushrooms. But I, yeah. I realized about two thirds of the way through that, like, um, yeah, you don't see them kill any animals or anything. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, but like, so wh- whereas it seemed like Captain Fantastic was very under control and very like comfortable in mm. the way that they presented. I mean, the family was in that way. The family was very comfortable in the way they lived in the woods. These people looks like they were. So Will and his daughter Tom. Looks like they were really kind of struggling to survive and really sort of making, trying to make ends meet every day. Like I, they seem very, very competent, for example. Like yeah. Will teaches Tom. I, I think that the, the process of them surviving was portrayed as harder. Yeah, and I think that they were exactly. more adept, adept at it. Like perhaps, yeah, perhaps more realistic in the way, not that we would know, but in the way that you're watching it, it feels a bit more realistic. I, I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, for, like he's quite militaristic in the way that he teaches his daughter to like cover her tracks when she's walking through the woods. Um, he, he's teaching her like, Real survivor skills. Yeah, like they have to ration their food every day. Like she wants to cook dinner, and he says, "No, don't," because that'll be that. That's the last of our food, and they have to find new food every day. Yeah. Um. He makes money by selling the pills he gets from his veterans' affairs payout because it is revealed that he was. So I I didn't realize, but um, the scarf that he's wearing from the start of the film is a Palestinian scarf. And right, so it's okay. pretty clear that he served somewhere around Gaza, probably, yeah. or in, sort of, in the Middle East, at least. So he's, he's a veteran from the recent Gulf Wars. Yeah, and the fact that he didn't realize, I think, is one of the things that sort of really draws you into the story at the yeah, beginning. Really is it really kind of drip-feeds you information. Whereas, like, I think a, I watched, actually, so Mark Kermode. I got onto this film because a film reviewer whose podcast I listened to, Mark Kermode. I think we've mentioned it. Yeah, we have before. This British bloke. This was, like, one of his top films of 2018. I think it was his top film of 2018. It I was. Thought, oh, we might as well go and watch it then. And in his review, um, he talked about the idea that um, in any other film, for example, you might have, or in a lesser film, you might have a lot of exposition where the daughter's like, where's mom and you know, why are we here? And that, that, that like, very deliberately explains everything. But really the first 20 minutes to half an hour is just you watching them live their lives. And like the only words they say to each other is like Will being like, good job, Tom. Or like, uh, can you pass me the masking tape or pa- whatever? Pass me the masking tape or yep. shit like that. Um, and so you really sort of a drip fed information as it goes throughout the film, as you find out more about the way these people live their lives, as they would bring it up with each other naturally. So and, and I might yeah. I add, it doesn't that doesn't uh, color their relationship as cold. No, it just shows that so much of their time is rooted in survival, and they both mostly know what they're doing about that. Yeah, but in any setting where she doesn't know, sorry, that where, where Tom, the daughter, doesn't know what to do. She defers to her father's expertise and he takes it as an opportunity to teach her. Yeah. Which really strongly establishes this mentor relationship between him and her. Yeah. And um, 
gives and you gives you an extremely strong impression of the way that they coexist. And they're clearly quite close. For those of you who haven't seen the film, if we were just describing like, oh, they don't talk for the first twenty minutes of the movie, like it sounds like it could be a bit flat. But it's really interesting watching them because it's not something. It's not dead space. Yeah. Like they're doing stuff the whole time. It's just going. It, it's just showing you that most of their communication is non-verbal. And I think that like in direct comparison to a film that would on paper be quite similar, like Captain Fantastic, in direct comparison to that, um, Captain Fantastic feels very filmy. Like it has a Guns N' Roses soundtrack. Yeah. It has all these characters with bright and colourful outfits and um, fantastical personalities and they know all that philosophy and religion when they're 12. It's very whimsical. It's very whimsical and it's, yeah, in, I know I, I mentioned at the time it has a Wes Anderson-y kind of feel to it. Yeah. I suppose not specifically like Wes Anderson, but that film feels a lot, it feels quite surreal. and It feels like you're watching it and the director knows, and you both know, they're not trying to show you anything vaguely realistic. No. In direct contrast to that, this feels like you're watching someone's real life in the most um, in the most vague way possible. Like, um, like obviously, it knows it's a movie and it's quite self-aware and has all these interesting movie things going on. But it, like, it's it's not like it's, go- it's, it's going not go- for realism. Yeah. It's going for believability and nuance. Yeah, but it's not going out of its way to drill exposition into you or explain what the story specifically is. Like, there's a lot of aimless wandering in this film. Yeah, um, it's actually lo- just on yeah. the the exposition front. It's one of my favorite things that that films like this do, and I, I like. God, I fucking wish more movies did this. Um, is this a, a, a trust in your audience that they will understand things if you don't hold their hand? Yeah. And also a willingness to leave behind audience members that don't get that mm. and just move on and say, well, you might not... Like, I didn't know that he was wearing a Palestinian neck scarf. I didn't need to know that. Yeah. You didn't have to tell me. It's something I learned after the movie. It didn't color my experience of it. I, yeah. I didn't need to know it moving forward because you didn't make the plot reliant on it. Well, but it's backstory that if you see that has a lot of meaning. Yeah. And so uh, it's this risk aversion that I feel like larger movies would have where, you know, in a boardroom or, or a review room, they would be saying, okay, look, we focus tested this scene and people didn't get what that was. So now we need a line of dialogue in there because four out of 12 people raised this issue that they didn't understand what this thing was. And so we have to have a line now. You have to go back and shoot a line that explains to those people who didn't get it what that was. And so they would have the daughter say, where did you get that scarf? (laughs) And he would say... Palestine or some <laughs> shit. <laughs> like now to pass now to study for your test on scarves of the Middle East. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or even worse, like that. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So I really love that this film, and I mean, it's just one of those things that that a smaller, um, more independent film ca- can do because they're less risk. Uh, they're less risk averse. Yeah. Um, but I think that it's so much stronger as a piece of art because of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Well, I suppose. Um. Convert. It's just something I really love, and when a Hollywood yeah. film does it, I'm I'm beyond impressed. But this I film, so. I, I I really thought it added a lot of value to it. Yeah. Um. In the other direction, though, I mean, not many people will have heard of this film, and I imagine it probably hasn't made very much money. So uh, I mean, it, also, but probably a pretty small budget. Yeah. Um. I don't know if it's if it lists it right at the bottom of that little side window. No, there. it doesn't. No, it says it says it says it's made a box office of about eight million dollars. But I, I mean, think this would have cost eight million to make. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Um. But yeah, so so certainly a small scale little project. It's apparently um, though, in terms of um, uh, positive reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it is the second most reviewed film it has to a hold hu- an approval rating, rating of one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes, beh- behind only Paddington Two, yeah, which fu- is a fucking great movie. I didn't see it, <laughs> but I believe you, and I've heard good things. It's so, so good, man. <laughs> so uh, I guess so. You um, like this movie a lot. I really did. I I I I um 
I liked it a lot more than I liked Captain Fantastic. I think it's more my shit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought that the 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 plot followed an arc that was much more realistically distracted and weird. Well, it's a lot more personal of a story, I think, in yeah. a way. Even though you get like a lot... It's funny, because you get a lot less character and a lot less of these exaggerated, crazy personalities. And like Captain Fantastic has a very specific story. It's like, yeah. let's go and you know win the hearts of my, my uh, yeah. mother and... My mother and... Win the hearts of my in-laws And it back, feels like example. it's got one of those like three-act stories where yeah, it's, it's like... Yeah, it's like, we know, gotta go get our baby and it's like a road trip. Resolution, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas this film, I feel like you really do get the sense that it's, it's a more personal story about this very specific struggle that these two people have. So like I really enjoyed, for example, the ways in which um, it's sort of so a lot of so Will and Tom go through almost ex- almost the exact same experience all the way through the film. They're very rarely separated in the film. Yeah, and so I think it's really interesting and kind of masterful the way in which Granick has depicted the very different perspectives that these two characters have about like a simultaneous situation. So, for example, there's this, there's a scene where they both have to undergo some sort of aptitude test, and um, Tom. I mean, so this is an example where they're um, the characters are presented with quite different circumstances in order to sort of reflect their worldview and reflect and emphasize the way in which they're kind of experiencing the world in general. Mm. So um, Will, the father, is kind of experiencing pretty severe kind of PTSD, but he never really talks about it. He just sort of seems always constantly anxious. The only time, like, we get a scene where he wakes up to a sound of a helicopter, but it's as soon as he wakes up, it it disappears, and that's pretty much one of the only ways that we're informed that he has... PTSD terror. I thought that was literally a real helicopter. No, because it, it's it's he snaps awake and it stops. Okay, right. Well, so yeah, he, so he does get flashbacks. He's yeah. quite anxious and he's clearly dealing with some sort of trauma, and that affects the way he deals with the world in every way. Yeah. So like he's got this test, for example, where he's got to answer all these questions, and they're being it says he's got like four hundred and eighty-seven questions. You have three seconds to ask to answer every question, and this computer reads it out in like a worse than Siri, like MS Sam kind it's, of voice, yeah. like do we have dark thoughts, and it's like. Silence. Boop. You missed that question. And you get like this long scene just looking at his face in the headphones and he just can't fucking deal with the fact that there's this computer that keeps throwing question after question after question at him and he has like a split second to respond. I thought for, for me, I was sitting there empathizing with him because he's he's confronting this issue of like, it's, 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 like, it's something as open-ended as being like, yeah, I have trouble. Um, or d- do you ever have trouble uh, coping with your situation in the world or some shit yeah. like that. It's a massive fucking question. And he's just looking at this thing being like, mm. uh, silently being like, how how can you possibly expect me, or at least this is what I imparted upon watching How do I do have that. two seconds how to answer that? How can I answer that question? How can I think about that question? Yeah. For three seconds and come up with an, a, a binary answer to that. Yeah. It'll be like, do you generally feel happy? Or whatever. Some shit like that. And yeah. um. And, uh, and it just keeps feeling, yeah, but you really feel bad for the guy. And it's sort of, it shows, it shows the ridiculousness of that test. And I think it must be in some way like a commentary on on the part of the director on the way in which veterans are dealt with and the way in which people with mental health problems are dealt with. Just the idea that like, they're quite deep and meaningful questions for this guy and he's doing his best. Mm. He really, really wants to answer these questions and do his absolute best to get through this situation. And he just can't. And the, this yeah. computer that's just like drill, like program to just keep going no matter what just keeps like barreling through him and like not giving a fuck about what he thinks or what he's experienced conversely his daughter's in the next room and there's like lovely ladies having a casual chat with him and like casually 
in a friendly manner going through this like a very similar kind of test but in a completely different way um right and I just uh, thought that was a perfect instance to go back to what I was originally talking about that was it's like a perfect instance of um just depicting two characters very different experiences of a very similar situation and you get that a lot later in the film as well when you get um like they might be in a camp and w- whatever stimulus <laughs> is in front of the characters. Um, Will is always constantly really stressed out and Tom is always really excited and looking for a learning opportunity and looking for a way to make friends and socialize. Yeah, he's doing threat assessment and she's yeah. all the, just all the time. He is always doing a threat assessment and, yeah. and she is just interested in learning about the world. So like one of the biggest, yeah, so one of the biggest focuses is like Will's anxiety over like adapting into society from his... St- PTSD point of view and then Tom has a very similar anxiety just based off the fact that she's grown up for the last 10 years living in the woods and has never really spoken to anyone and so she has this deep seat of anxiety about her own future um, and about how is she ever going to become a part of society and how is she ever going to make friends and meet people and go to school or whatever if she if she can't even get started in all these social situations and I think one one thing that's really clever about that particular beat in the storyline is that so that's kind of the first circumstance where they properly find themselves out of that natural forest environment their home um they sort of find themselves moving from community to community they're in like a little town and then they're on like a farm and then they're on like a little like trailer park yeah but so the film sort of shows them moving from town to town generally um but before so for the for about the first 20 minutes they're just it's it's just that survivalism in in the yeah. in the forest, and then this is the first sort of the first experience that you as the viewer and also them as people living in this world and in this situation um, are sort of ripped out of that and placed in this very cold, very unnatural, very man-made uh, office environment. They're put in front of these th- these tests where, you know, if you came across them as part of like a cognitive testing battery, you would be like, oh yeah, okay. But mm. when it's contrasted with the way that these people were immediately living beforehand, they just seem so alien it's and so strange. so jarring. And I think what's really cool about the way that Will's test with the, the 400 questions on the computer was done yeah. is that, so it, it's interesting that you kind of latched onto that as a... Uh, an examination of him as a veteran because I latched onto that as an examination of him in the greater circumstance of wanting to live outside of that society that's then bringing him in once again and questioning why he's not a part of it. And being forced to follow these what seems like meaningless, pointless rules. Right. And the thing is about that test is there's a premise, right, which is you have to give a yes or no answer. You have to make a choice. It's a binary choice. Yeah. But you can't opt out of that choice because that's a failure in the test size, right? Because it it, it beeps loudly at you and it clearly signals that you didn't do something wrong. That's then recorded. So you feel like, well, I chose not to give an answer and that's definitely not going to reflect positively on me. And I thought that was a really interesting little plot device that sits really nicely as a reflection of the greater plot as a whole. I think so. Where you can either try to be a part of this society or you can try to be completely apart from it. But if you choose to try and abstain and belong within the space of it, but not participate in it, to not that's be a complete with, failure. If you choose to not be within society, they also view that as 
a complete failure. Well, yeah, but but then you can't be here. So you can't participate. So you can't say yes to the society, or, or you can say yes to the society and be a part of it. You can say yeah. no and leave. Yeah. You can't say no to the society, but stay here. And yeah. I think one of the most powerful lines for me in the entire film, and possibly my favorite moment, was when... Is that what she's talking to the other children? No, it's 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 when the one of the interviewers from I think it's probably child services or some government Whatever. agency like that. We're verging into spoiler territory. For about the yeah. first third of the film, yeah. yeah. Um we might just talk about it. So sure, whatever. I, uh, yeah. Um he's he's talking to this woman and he's basically saying something along the lines of why is it a problem for us to be where we were and she says you can't live on public land. <laughs> and I just think that's such a that's such a simple way to say to, to to sort of summarize this entire problem because it's like no one else was there um they were so far off a beaten track that people never ran into them yeah um they were living completely sustainably and not having it you know i mean funnily enough in the name of the title they were leaving no trace of their uh existence there because they were living completely sustainably yeah and yet it's considered public they're citizens of the country, so they have part ownership in that, but they're not allowed to live there by a government that has no actual interest in that land. Yeah, they only have an interest in making people follow this rule set yeah. because they have to. And I think another part of that for me um, was the way that they portrayed these people from this kind of the other side of things. The 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 government employees that that needed to look into these matters in Captain Fantastic. Um, I'm not sure if I can't even remember if they actually ever really made a uh, an impact or if it was mostly just his parents-in-law. It's just his but, parents. Right. So in this case, the, you do deal with direct members of of government, and they're not the bad guys. No. They are very much they're reasonable people. They want the best for both of them, but they're stuck between a rock and a hard place because they kind of are forced to try and help them assimilate, but. They're very human about the way that they do that, and they understand the difficulty. Yeah, and see, that's what makes me think that it's not really a criticism of like why why can't we all live in national parks? I think it's more like a criticism of that uh, modernist view where we all have to conform to one society's rules, regardless of what that means for you as an individual. Yeah, it's this very like anti-individualist perspective, and I think that ties very nicely back into like veterans affairs type stuff, where like. Um, I watched an interview or like a Q&A thing with the director at some screening it was on YouTube um, and she was talking she was asked a question by the interviewer about like what that might say about the very US centric perspective where they have this tremendous reverence and respect for their veterans from, in, from like a cultural point of view but then if you actually go from there from a rhetorical point of view yeah, yeah but then when you actually go there so many apparently in like LA for example so many of the homeless population are like veteran and yeah, that are so poor that can't even afford houses and they can't afford healthcare yep. and all this shit and so like They've it's this completely discarded by their country yeah it's yeah. this insane like back back padding approach they have where they say oh we love our veterans but actually from a general societal point of view don't do anything to actually help them yeah. and so like it's the same thing where like this dude's living in a national park with his daughter because he's fucking sick and he, he can't deal with society. And so they go, Oh, we'll just put you through the same process as everyone else. And here's the same tests as everyone else that clearly isn't suited for you at all. And here's this town and this community that's not suited for you at all. 
I think it was really interesting. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily try to answer this question of like, well, is the way that they're living better? I mean, for me personally, and I'm, I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts on it, maybe you had a different sensation about yeah. it, but um, for me, looking at um, the... <laughs> Just looking at the way that things are going and the fact that, like, in the next hundred years, like, our our existence as a species is threatened completely oh, we're the all way die. that we... No, in fact, for sure. Well, <laughs> a, 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 at least in this format, like, seven billion people, yeah, for definitely. Like, there's there's mm. just no way... I, I mean, the, the Earth has a, a hard limit of, like, nine <laughs> point something billion people. That's, like, the maximum sustainable number of humans. And we're careening towards that with none of the necessary infrastructure. Fuck yeah. So, like, there are going to be all sorts of wars about resources, including, like, drinkable water. <laughs> and so when I'm when I'm looking at someone like that, I'm thinking, like, well, no, they're, they're living like we, like we need to be in order yeah. for us to keep living. Like, if we want to fucking still exist in any format you can't force people to have like individual plots of land and drive a car and go to work (laughs) and that type of shit so like i i kind of got this deep sense of like um respect for what will was trying to do um and the way that he was trying to live and and a just a kind of a fundamental appreciation for that sustainable style of living which might i add um very much emulates what indigenous people were doing in most countries before they colonized. Yeah. Because they had no choice because they just died if they didn't do stuff like that. Anyway. um, And, and for me, this question of there's a real catch 22 there because um, Will's making the choice to opt out into that, to opt out of the society he was a part of into that new lifestyle. And he's bringing his child with him. And it's a philosophical question that the film asks of is, what about the child's choice to be in this? Because yeah. by the time, if 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 you want them to reach a stage where they're able to make the decision, you've taken them away from the society for so long that it's questionable whether or not they will ever have a redeemable experience in that society, right? Yeah, and or whether they'll be able to have like an objective point of view on right and it, it, society. It, it doesn't. It asks a question, but it doesn't have an, a definitive answer to it. And yeah. the answer that it gives is very human and very complex and sort of a, a bit broken and it, it isn't perfect. Yeah. And so I think that the way that they've chosen to sort of not, because it doesn't tie up in yeah. how it ends, but like the way that they've chosen to approach finishing the story in the film yeah, um, was really well done. I think it was really great. And I think in terms of my perspective on um, their living style or which culture is better, um, it is very similar to our, our discussion of Captain Fantastic, isn't it? Um, yeah, there's I, a lot of yeah. stuff. Um, I think that in terms of my perspective on it, I think it really did come down to me, um, to the fact that it was really harsh on the door to Tom. And he's clearly, I think the father is clearly being, in my in my opinion, quite selfish about the way he's choosing to live completely separate from society. Yeah. Because he's also kind of... He knows he's, it too. He's completely, yeah. And he's, he's completely relying on... About so, it. He's Yeah, he's relying on society completely. Like whether it's other people's kindness mm. or like literally like the veterans affairs um like pension in terms of medication that he's getting um so he's not really living off the land as much as he is like trying to isolate himself as completely as possible and um to sort of give yeah. a slow yeah to so to yeah. sort of give a slow spoiler warning to give people a chance to to flick it off because i think this is a good film um there you go <laughs> um i think that so essentially, the plot of the film is that um, these people, after a certain point, they're, they're hiding in the woods. No one knows they're there. About twenty minutes in, this is random accident. 
where a jogger spots them and reports them to child services. Child services spots ca- Tom, spots alone yeah, in the woods. The daughter, yeah, yeah. Um, reports them to like human services or whatever, and they get brought in for this testing, and they get put out to like some uh, government housing somewhere. And there's this bloke on a farm that's offered to put them up in his like granny program, flat, yeah, yeah, and like, oh, come do farm work. And so um, then every time they get settled in a new little community like that, Tom loves it, and Tom starts to talk to people and sort of deal with her anxiety. And the dad's like, no, we've got to go. We've got to go, 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 go. And he yeah. just like, they, they leave in the middle of the night. And it happens like as, four as times. As a through line, like she consistently adapts to the situation that she's put in, just like children are kind of meant to do. Yeah. And she wants to integrate and wants to learn. Mm. And he needs to detach and be alone. For absolutely no reason. It's not like they're on the well, run from the yeah. law. I mean, not, or any, not no reason, yeah. but... No, no, justi- no external reason. No justifiable external reason. It's not like they're on the run from the law or anything. He just constantly wants to be moving. And so, mm. and every time Tom's like, what are we doing? I really liked it there. What's going on? Yeah. Um, hopefully you've seen it by this point. Cause uh, as, as we <laughs> said, like, people can it's really worth seeing it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, but watch it. Yeah. But w- <laughs> again, I think another risk that this film takes is that it never explains his internal perspective to you. No. They never, they don't like the whole time. And I think this film would have been worse if they did this. I expected them to have this total breakdown where they both start screaming at each other and she's basically like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he's like, here's everything that's wrong with me, all right? Yeah. Now that you've asked, they I never can say it all. It. No, it just doesn't yeah. happen. He just and she he asks keeps a it lot. bottled within. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she sort of does. She, she knows that something's well, wrong, but she doesn't yeah. actually ask him to I elaborate. So. In her she own just way. says, she, she acknowledges that she understands that there is something. Yeah. But that she is different and that he she takes actually the more mature perspective. Um possibly because she's able to because she doesn't have the same issues yeah. and is basically like I'm not the same as you I I, I want different things I know yeah. why you want to keep moving yeah. but I don't want that yeah um, and so after they've after they've moved and they've become settled and moved on to sort of three different quite rural communities yeah. all within this big sort of forested kind of area in the state I think it's in uh what did you say? Near Oregon? Yeah. yeah, but then they move and it's in like Washington or something. Colorado or somewhere yeah. up north. Yeah. Um, the film kind of draws itself to a natural conclusion. Yeah. Um, but I think that um, the whole time, yeah, you get this really interesting perspective um, on the way in which these two different characters experience exactly the same communities. Mm. So as they go through this caravan park and the farm and all the different places they find themselves in, um, I think that was the most valuable part of the movie. It, like, For example, I think there's a lot of scenes where there aren't any music at all where there isn't any music at all and you hear just like nature sounds and that kind of thing yeah the soundtrack is is something that commode uh mentioned as as being a a really massive thing and it was you know it matched the tone of the rest of the film it was very very sparing um yeah it it just it you know they knew when to not have any other sound and it was unnerving they knew when to not have any sound but the birdsong or insects and it was beautiful and that's what I mean yeah. about so it was always this na- a lot of the time it was just this natural kind of nature sounds forming the soundtrack of the film and when Will was on screen like having his anxiety Which, kind of by the way r- r- references the experience of the characters because they didn't have access to things that played music or whatever so yeah, it, was, right. it was very much diegetic sound right and so but so when Will was on screen that kind of felt quite unnerving and quite sort of eerily, eerily silent mm. and then when Tom is on screen it would often feel quite quite pleasant and quite calming I found yeah. um, some of the only times that actual songs are used in the film I think it's twice the first time is when they're brought along to the farmer's church service right and these old people get up at the front and they're like um, 
lacy dresses and do this weird like flag dance <laughs> and they play some like 90s rock song and it's it very strange. Completely breaks you out of it. You're it's like, bizarre. Jesus, what's going on? And I think it really does like serve to give the audience a bit of the same experience that Tom and Will are having. About, yeah. Like, what the fuck is going on? We're in this church and watching these people dance, and it's just completely incongruous with the rest of the tone of the film, which further serves to sort of uh, show how jarring and strange it is for them to be in this weird culture, yeah. um, which is just like society. Um, and the second time is this lovely folk music in the woods and I think it works really nicely and it adds to this like feeling of community that Will is completely separate But from. again, both times, totally diegetic. You're watching the you're watching this, the music happen on screen as it's happening. Like it's, a, it's not a backing yeah, soundtrack. There's like a dude with a guitar sitting yeah. by a campfire or whatever. So, yeah, I, I thought the just to touch quickly on some of the, the actual filmmaking elements of this. Yeah, sure. Um, I thought that the performances were uh, Im- immaculate. Um, the daughter specifically was very, very good. Ben, ben Foster plays Will, um, and I guess actually I, I'm more inclined to say um, Thomas and Mackenzie, who plays Tom, yeah. is almost the lead. Like she probably, probably well, gets yeah. a lot more screen time than he does, well, and so I they needed to pick someone good. Because I think she's the character that's changing and undergoing a bit of growth throughout the film yeah. as it goes on. She's the more interesting one. I think Will. Um, Will is sort of constantly anxious and stressed out the whole time and he sort of is at some points not present on screen mm. and so I think Tom inherently is the one where it's more interesting to be watching her growing and experiencing the world for the first time whereas Will has deliberately chosen to remove himself from that. Yeah. And like she, her performance she needs to have a, a really massive range of emotion but manages to do it in a way that is is very like reserved restrained. In a way. Yeah. yeah. And they both are. Um, but she's got a real way of making you empathize when she's upset. Yeah, something it's uh, something about the 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 way that she can she can twitch her face. Um, you know, she's got that real like the chin wobble, and her eyes well up. And it, it she was a she was a very um she had a very convincing performance. It's very believable of distress. And Ben Foster as well. Um, in uh, what I guess I'll. I'll call a supporting role um, as yeah. the paternal figure uh, is is also very very good um, and probably in this wasn't a simple performance but it was a, a very uh, I think probably a very difficult one where you needed to show a lot with very little tools. Yeah, um, I th- and I thought they did a very good job of displaying the very close, the very intimate relationship they had. Um, Without being able to rely on conversation in a very minimal kind of way, yeah. yeah. Apparently, they had about two weeks of rehearsals beforehand. Yeah, um, and, and I think cool. that was mixed in with like wilderness training too, like survival so, training. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's uh, probably a good way to do it. I think we watched a similar um, Q and A. Something I was very surprised to hear, and <laughs> didn't seem to make much sense. The director chose to shoot this film in chronological order. <laughs> which is really strange. No one ever does like literally. Yeah, no one does it's, that. It's weird, it's, it's, but I mean, maybe maybe she thought. I don't know if she spoke to this on the Q and A, but did she think that it would change the on-screen dynamic between the two characters? It sounded like she said, "Oh, this is just how I happened to shoot the film." Right. And um, the actress Thomason, who played the daughter, was like, "Actually, I f- personally found that very helpful because the character undergoes this emotional and personal growth in the film, yeah. and she, as an actress, felt like she was able to." feel that growth go as she went from scene to scene. So she's actually a New Zealand actress, which I didn't know. I'm she has c- yeah. She has an extremely sort of sweet and I'll say like vulnerable voice in a way, yeah. but she has a real strength and resilience to her character. So I think that balances out well because 
um, you sort of see her initially from a very like paternalistic perspective as someone that needs to be educated and protected. Yeah. And then you realize that, well, actually like she's dealt with her fair share of tough shit and she's got an emotionally sort of a very emotionally guarded father who um, she's had to kind of exist without a lot of <laughs> interaction from in, in a bunch of different ways. So yeah, yeah I think she, she does a really good, good performance. Um, in terms of that and her accent is completely believable. I didn't pick it up at any point that she was from New Zealand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. And this, this is a tiny little point. And I don't know whether this is interesting enough to um, beggar mentioning, but um, there's a, there's a, uh, a common motif throughout oh, the film. X Factor of s- buzz you if it's boring. <laughs> There's a common motif throughout the film of seahorses. Like she finds a seahorse necklace that she's playing with throughout the film. Oh, wow. When the jogger discovers them first in the woods, um, she's reading a magazine and looking at this article about seahorses. Seahorses are one of the only animals on the planet where it's the males that carry the children and carry the of eggs. Of course, yeah. Um, it's one of the. It's an example of male, arguably of male pregnancy. Yeah, because they're the ones that. Um, it, the children develop within the male. Yeah. They're just not conceived within Which them. Which is, so. you know, an interesting little motif, I yeah, suppose. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it is a constant kind of motif <laughs> throughout I mean, the film. Maybe that was literally just like, oh, she needs to find a necklace. What should it be? Oh, I guess a fucking seahorse. Nah, that kind of makes sense with the dad and that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I think it's probably not too much of an accident with yeah. this kind of shit. Um. So the cinematography and and the way that the actual camera works is great. Um, yeah, it's very things things linger. There were some really interesting shots that um, kind of the shots, man. No, it wasn't. It wasn't one of these films. It wasn't like uh, you were never really here, where it was no. Yeah, I agree. It was noticeably odd. It yeah. was just that sometimes the framing would look very. So uh, one of the I think I think it might have been um the reviewer I think it might have been uh Peter Bradshaw or, or or someone else's review that said um uh Deborah Granick has a really great ability to place you as a viewer in right in the space that the yeah. characters are in and a lot of these environments are not particularly easy to localize yourself within they're not distinctive the forest is kind of just forests like it's not there's not they're not under a waterfall or there's no distinctive features about it so it's hard yeah. to ground yourself there they're in an unremarkable hotel rooms or houses or whatever um but the way that she chooses to construct the shots of the film is very intimate um and yeah. often a character is uh, appears uh, i don't really know how to describe this it's a lens choice thing the <laughs> character appears very close to you but you also see a lot of space around them. Yeah, so it makes it feel like you're sitting right there because as much as you're, you feel quite close to the actor on screen, um, you can still see a lot of what's surrounding them, yeah, sure. which is I, a very difficult thing to achieve. I saw, I saw in that uh, Q&A that we watched, they were talking about the idea that they worked with a very, very minimal crew. So mm. for most of the scenes at the beginning of the film where they're sort of just living in their little camp in the woods, um, it's just one camera guy that was like literally like when they had the campfire scene, the camera guy was like right on the other side of the campfire. Like, yeah. um, and then like all the rest of the crew, like a sound guy, were like hidden in the woods almost. Like um, most of the... Uh, most of the rest of the, there was no most of the rest of the crew. Like it was literally just a, cam- a camera guy and a microphone. Wow, that's cool. Pretty much. I wonder if they use like lavalier mics or if they had a boom guy. 
that was off to the side. Be a fucking pain <laughs> to have a boom <laughs> I, guy I, in this I movie. I have no idea. No, I'm just interested. So basically, the way that that works is if you can, it's always preferable to use a boom mic. So if you can see the characters and you can see that there's no boom guy standing next to them, they're using lavalier or doing it in post. A lavalier <laughs> mic for those of you listening at home is a lapel, a, a, mic, a lapel yeah. mic that's usually hidden. Um, and a boom mic is a guy standing there with a microphone physically pointed at the actor's mouth so that you can capture the dialogue the best. Because in movies, basically the dialogue is the only thing that is recorded on set, usually, and all of the rest of the sounds, as a general rule of thumb, are added in post by a different team. So in this case, like when you're talking about standing with a large group of people, standing in the middle of fucking foliage, that's a lot of background sounds and... um, other things that you've got to worry about. So it might have been easier for them to just kind of strap them with lavalier mics and say, okay, it's just you two and the cameraman and me, the director, go. You know, that's an interesting approach. And it does feel very minimal and intimate. Yeah, and they, so they sort of said that really sort of added to the whole feel of the film while they were acting it, the idea that it was very intimate and small. Just yeah. That it was a very small crew. It wasn't I, like I've 50 heard that people behind the camera. I've heard that that's a real struggle for actors on big sets where, you know, you kind of have to have these emotional performances or or be funny or whatever. And, it, it, you know, there's like 60 people in the fucking room on set um, kind of waiting on you to get it right. Whereas in this case, it probably would have just been a few people, you know. So I, I would imagine that that would make it easier to sort of I don't know, have an intimate performance between the two characters. I- anyway, yeah. it works. It's really good. We should probably so. get to wrapping it up. I, I think so. As a better than worse than, this was vastly better than Captain Fantastic. Uh, I liked it a lot I think, more. I think they're very different, so it comes down to personal preference, but I personally agree. I on, think that On paper, they're going for the same thing and asking a lot of the same questions, but the way that they approach those questions is very different. Yeah. I personally happen to prefer this. I would imagine a lot of people like Captain Fantastic more. Yeah. No, I think this is really interesting. It was a very quiet kind of film and a very understated kind of film in a way that I think you have to be in the right headspace to watch. Not that it's complex or anything, but like... No, it's not hard it's to a, understand. It's a, it's a quiet kind of film, and I think yeah. you just have to be in the right mood to watch a quiet drama. I think it was really cool. Yeah. And I... Really, that was interesting, and it was a really warm kind of film in terms of the relationships between all the characters. It was not like it was like a really heavy kind of. When I read the description on paper, I thought like, "Oh fuck, man, that sounds like the most traumatic, heavy film." And it's not really. It's like a. It's almost. It's almost warm and interesting and happy the one yeah. when you're watching it. It's just that the characters specifically go through some emotional shit. It ticks my box of like a project film where it's just kind of it's just a very self-contained idea. It does its own thing. It's not yeah, trying no, to I extend think so. beyond itself. I really like that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. I it was great. I would I would strongly recommend going and watching it. It's currently available to rent on iTunes for a dollar. A dollar. I rented it on Google Play because fuck Apple. But <laughs> it, yeah. it, it made me want to recover my iTunes account, and I opted out. I was just like, nah, <laughs> I'll pay six times the price to not have to oh, go yeah. through the rigmarole of recovering I, my fucking I, Apple account. I almost felt, I almost felt dirty um, paying a dollar yeah. to watch the film like, for fuck, a feature man. film. Yeah. The, 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 the studio is not even going to see 80 cents of my dollar. No. <laughs> I'd probably agree with the better than Captain Fantastic. I don't necessarily think of worse than off the top of my head. No, I, don't, I haven't tough. really seen very many other quiet of dramas. I also I, think, I think perhaps it's worse than You Were Never Really Here. You Were Never Really Here okay. reminds me of... It's very similar now that I think about it. In that it's a very, it's a very small little film. It's about the characters, not really about the story. Yeah, you've got the same sort of veteran with the PTSD kind of themes, and it's sort of showing how they interface or don't interface with the rest of society and the way they deal with their anxiety. I think it was. I think 
better than Captain Fantastic, worse than You Were Never Really Here. You Were Never Really Here was like my favorite film from last year. I... Regardless of whatever my number one was, I don't remember. I could be sold on that, but I think... Um, I didn't try I like the <laughs> No, I, I like the conceptual basis of people living sustainably in the woods by themselves more than I think I like the conceptual basis of You Were Never Really Here. Yeah. Um, but yeah... Also, similar in the title theme, like Leave No Trace, You Were Never Really Here. It's about this like kind of yeah, trans- so. transience absence. We could very well have spent this whole episode comparing those two films. Yeah, that would be an interesting pair. As well. yeah. I think that if you, hadn't, if you haven't seen Leave No Trace, I think it's worth your while. Uh, I absolutely. Think, I think if you haven't seen You Were Never Really Here, I would almost compare that, recommend that a lot more. Um, mm. It's very similar. It's it might also be harder to get a hold of at this point. Oh, probably, yeah. We'll That's funny, isn't it? It's also yeah. very quiet, but it's got this great... You Were Never Really Here has got this fantastic soundtrack. It's got beats of if, action. <laughs> if you want to hear a good example of sound mixing, You Were Never Really Here is fucking amazing. <laughs> if you want to see an example of what you can do with sound... Yeah. That is a fucking great really, movie. Really, really. And uh, then that's mu- music in that was done by yeah. Johnny Greenwood in from Radiohead. Yeah. So that's why it's well, amazing. That's yeah. one reason why it's great. <laughs> and yeah. then it, and that film specifically, uh, you weren't really here, has got moments of action that do really well to contrast with the quiet dramatic moments. Yeah. That, and it, it lifts both of them up. Um, in a way that I think this film perhaps was missing. Not that it needs it, but... I think that it was an extra feature of you and Ever Really Here that maybe enjoyed a lot more. I think one of the key differences, just to kind of sum up that comparison, is yeah. that, um, from my perspective, is that <laughs> you and Ever Really Here is trying to give you an insight into Joaquin Phoenix's internal character, whereas um, I think that Leave No Trace is trying to illustrate the relationship between these two characters but acknowledge that it can't really show you the internal state yeah, and, and remain a- external I think that's probably fair. Yeah, um, if, and it feels a lot more like it's sort of trying to summarize a more holistic kind of cultural issue in that way. Yeah, like you and Everly here feels a lot more personal. I, I'm I'm wondering if I mean I know that so I realized after I went oh I've cracked something here <laughs> that um, Captain Fantastic came out in 2016 and this came out in 2018, so they're actually a couple of years apart. But I'm wondering if we'll see a bit of a resurgence of this. This narrative device of a character or family wanting to disengage from kind of a mainstream society and then be pursued and question why they aren't able to do that. Why aren't you being normal kind of thing? Yeah, Uh, yeah, and and, and why aren't I allowed to not be? Yeah, you know what? What's what's the actual reason why I'm not allowed to? I be? think that's a very interesting, almost very American perspective that I think is very mm. yes, it's a very interesting cultural cultural perspective they have, where they have this very very specifically uh, sort of internalized notion that they have this right to freedom that I think means you get this really interesting kind of perspective films out there. Mm. Not, that, not that everyone doesn't, but I think it's a very American kind of And kind the hypocrisy of, view, of, of, of standing up for a right to freedom but then persecuting someone trying to exercise it, I think is also exactly. a very American and I think, thing. And yeah. I think that that's where the, both of these films, all, all the films we've come back to today, sort of go back to their very subtly... Um, Subtle and interesting commentary about society that I think is really valuable. Yeah. Um, this was a great movie. Yeah. yeah um, I think it's worth watching. As I said, worth your time. Yeah. Uh, didn't really factor into anything that I was talking about last year because I didn't really know about it. No. Um, but it got recognized in those type of um, 
uh, top list type indie, things. indie Spirit Awards style. Yeah, it was nominated very specifically that, for one of the Spirit Awards, and I don't remember which one it was, but it was I up think there on this. Thomas and McKenzie might have been recognised a little bit for her performance. I can't. I remember honestly don't that. remember. It might have been yeah. a cinematography or something, but that's kind of what motivated me to go. Like, you know what? Maybe I will watch that because I heard about it twice now. Mm. Um, I think it's about all the time we have left for on this week's episode of Beef Station. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us again this week. I think all the films we discussed today are probably worth going back and visiting. Mm. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed the episode. As always, if you did, you can flick us an email. That's beefstationpod at gmail.com. Thank you, Gina, for emailing in with some kind words and feedback about our previous episode. It's always appreciated. Thanks also to Gina for chasing me up about how I hadn't responded to her about the email yet, which I hadn't <laughs> seen, because when you read it, it marks it as read in my inbox. Yeah, and then <laughs> I just del- I just delete them. and pre- I print them out, shred them, and then delete them, just to add insult to injury. Yeah. Um, so I'll do better, Gina. I just thought it was... I'm I'm sorry. <laughs> How about we just reply to you and then don't mention it on the podcast or Then you'll never get your five seconds of fame. Um, yeah. You can like us on Facebook. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Beef Station Pod. He's ah! fucking nailed it, folks. <laughs> We've finally done it. I reckon it was eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. I'm Oscar. Andrew. Have a good week. <laughs>